0: Um, before I begin this morning. We had a little mix-up. It's all right. The Lord's good on the communion. So we'll reschedule that. So if you look for that in the bulletin, it says we're supposed to have it, but we're not going to do that this morning. So apologize for that confusion. Um, amen. Miriam Webster defines a traitor as a person who betrays another or one who causes any distrust. A traitor could also be a person who commits treason by betraying his or her own country. As we consider traitors and treason and think about this truth in our daily lives, we've seen that flashed across the headlines. Uh, There's not many weeks that go by that we don't hear of stories about WikiLeaks and their latest leaking of classified CIA documents or of Julian Assange and or of Snowden or of Chelsea Manning. We hear of stories of traitors and we get a sense of vitriol, a sense of hatred. We have something that sort of boils up in our hearts and in our stomachs. We can feel it. A sense of hatred that toward these individuals as they have betrayed their own country. They have actually not only betrayed their own country, but have also caused others to be harmed by leaking classified documents. Perhaps secret or undercover agents are exposed and, and therefore are vulnerable to threats of, of of death. And so we know that as we consider what a traitor is and how he betrays his own country, well, brothers and sisters, we we've perhaps, if you've lived really longer than a few days, know what it feels like to be betrayed. Perhaps you were betrayed by someone close to you, a friend, or or perhaps the worst being betrayed by a parent, a mom or dad, betraying you, turning their back on you. Perhaps it was a sibling who betrayed you, or a, a spouse who betrayed your trust. Betrayal. Is at the heart of many sins. And our Lord Jesus faced one of the most horrible pictures of betrayal. A man whom He had spent years loving, giving His time to, and praying for, and who betrayed Him for money. For personal gain success. For Judas, following Jesus didn't get him where he wanted to get in the world. For Judas, he used Jesus to to step up the ladder, if you will. He used Jesus for personal gain. And the question I have for you this morning is how are you using Jesus? How are you using Jesus? Are you using Christ Jesus for your own personal gain? Or for His glory? I invite you to turn this morning to Mark chapter 14. If you haven't already done that, I invite you to grab a Bible that's in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, And to turn, excuse me, to page 851, it will help you immensely to have God's Word open before you, lest you trust what I say, I pray you do not, I pray you trust what God's Word says. And so have the Bible open before you, so that you can hear from your Savior today. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 43. And immediately, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given him a sign, saying, the one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him under, away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. Rabbi. And he kissed him, and and they laid their hands on Jesus and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Well, as we consider this passage this morning, um, we need to think about the context in which it sits. Now, if you've been walking through this, you understand that this is that dreadful night of Gethsemane. This is just literally minutes after Jesus has Prayed in the garden, he has sweat the drops of blood, he has been in great agony as he contemplates the cross, as he contemplates God's wrath that is going to be poured out upon him on the cross of Christ, he is overwhelmed and discouraged in his disciples. And if you remember last week, he went to those disciples three times and he found them sleeping each time they were taking a little load off. They were taking a nap. It was a long day. They had celebrated the Passover. They had made preparation for the Passover, then celebrated it. In John, it takes up uh, uh, five chapters. That night was full of activities. There was a lot going on from the woman who came and, and broke that alabaster flask and, and anointed Jesus' head with oil to, to the, the Lord's Supper and, and then the garden and the, the singing of Psalms and all the, the grand things. The disciples were tired. They were, their flesh was weak, Jesus says, and they were ready just to go home and call it a day. But for Jesus, it was only the beginning. The night would still go on. Into the wee hours of the morning we are told that Jesus will stand before the high priest, that Jesus will go before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council in Jerusalem, and He would be tried by them for a crime He did not commit. He would stand condemned as a sinner And he would ultimately, the next day, go to the cross and die. What we want to think about today is what can we learn from the arrest of Jesus? Is this just mere narrative? Is this just merely Mark telling us a little story about Jesus? And and really it doesn't amount to a whole lot? What do we understand from this story From Jesus' arrest, what can we gather from it that is for our lives together? Mark is writing this to Christians. To people like you and I who already know the story. We know Jesus is going to be arrested. We know Jesus is going to be condemned. Yes, we know Jesus goes to the cross. And that kind of passe way of talking about it is exactly why we get in trouble Because we think lightly of the cross and we think lightly of the events that led up to the cross. My hope this morning is that you see that that this is God's Word to His church. that, That He wanted you to know this stuff. He wanted to tell you about the way He was manhandled by sinners and arrested. An innocent man arrested. And beaten having done nothing to deserve any of it. So what is the point of this passage? I think it is this. Jesus Christ willingly endured evil by His betrayers and others so that He could save you from your treasonous acts against God. Jesus Christ willingly Endured evil at the hands of his betrayer and at the hands of sinful and wicked men so that you and I could be freed, saved from our treasonous attacks, our rebellious attacks against God. And so this morning presents really two main themes I want us to consider. First, First, the wickedness of the human heart. And second, the willingness of Jesus to endure evil by sinners and for sinners. First, the wickedness of the human heart. Secondly, the willingness of Jesus Christ to endure evil by sinners and for sinners sinners. As we take up this passage, as we think about what is happening in here, we are struck, I hope, by the wickedness of these men. First, we see the wickedness displayed in Judas. Now, we've been told about this event. We have already kind of been warned that it's going to happen. We're not surprised by it. We're not like, wow, we didn't expect that from Judas, right? Why? Well, as you go all the way back to the beginning of the gospel, from the very beginning, Mark identifies Judas as the one who will betray Jesus, or the one who betrayed Jesus, right? What what an epithet, right, to put on the tombstone, right? Betrayer of Jesus. That's what he's known for, as we've already mentioned. Just imagine for the last 2,000 years, Judas has been talked about as the betrayer, that's his legacy, and we considered in a few weeks ago about leaving a lasting legacy, and the kind of legacy that that woman left, as opposed to Judas. And you can just, if you have your Bibles open, just look back over at verse ten, chapter fourteen, and verse ten. Mark tells us then Judas Iscariot. Again, Judas was a popular name, so we're just kind of just kind of identifying not not that Judas, that Judas. Uh, And so he's just clarifying, Judas Iscariot, and then look, who was one of the twelve? And we see that same sort of language used over in verse 43, Judas came one of the twelve. Mark wants you to make sure you understand and get it clear that this was not an outliner. This was not an outsider. This wasn't something that was coming from outside the camp, if you will. No, this is someone from within the camp. This is someone who, who knew Jesus. This is someone who shared meals with Jesus. This is someone who slept with Jesus. Now, you know, they didn't, they didn't every time Jesus traveled... He didn't go down to the hotel in town and and, and, get his own room by himself and kind of live in seclusion. No, he lived and he slept, he ate with his disciples. For three and a half years, he lived with Judas. And we're going to consider in a moment what that all means from a glorious, uh, divine perspective of Jesus. that he, He knew it, but yet he let him in. He let the enemy into the camp. he became the enemy for the enemy. So we see Judas here is identified as one of the twelve. We need to understand that, look, this guy was close to Jesus. He heard all the sermons. He heard all the prayers. He heard it all. He, he was there with Jesus. He, mit, he didn't miss any Wednesday night Bible study or Sunday you know, prayer meetings. He didn't miss any of those things. He was at them all. He was the guy that was there. And he was involved. And we're told in the other Gospels that that Judas was allowed to keep the money. I mean, think about this. Jesus knew this guy was a traitor, but yet let him keep the money. And we're told by the other Gospel writers that it was because he loved money and why he kept the money. We're told down in verse 17 uh, by Jesus that, That it will be one of the twelve. He tells them just uh, hours before the event happens. He says, look, here's the deal. One of you is going to betray me. Not one of you in the room. And there was probably gathered in in that house many people. As we saw the woman came in, there was... People serving. It was a it was a party. There was a lot of folks there, but the twelve were there with Jesus at the table, and Jesus says, Look, it's not someone out there. It's someone right here, right here with me, eating with me, sharing a meal with me. And, we, and brothers and sisters, we, we understand the intimacy of eating meals with people. That's why when you go to a restaurant, you don't ask to sit with strangers, right? You ever been to those restaurants before where they like sit you with strangers? It's like weird and awkward. Like, I don't know you. I don't want to sit and eat with you. Um, But we understand there's an intimacy, right, in sharing a meal with someone. Well, so it was in this culture, but probably so much more than even in our own. To share a meal, to break bread with somebody, was akin to opening your life to them and showing love to them, that you cared for them. And we see Jesus is, is bringing this man near to him. But we also see that it causes Jesus' great sorrow. It would be dangerous to make light of Judas's betrayal. To brush it off as it was really no big deal. Jesus is Superman after all. He's the man of steel. He can handle it. He's God. No friends, this betrayal dug just as deep as a betrayal And so much more. A man whom Jesus invested in and cared for. And we're told that that he came to Jesus. And and as we look back over here at verse 44, look at the events. Mark tells us what's going to happen. He says, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Kiss. Phileo. That word that's usually translated love. This wasn't just a a little, little peck. This was an intimate, brotherly kiss. This was an embrace. Judas says, I'm going to embrace Him. I'm going to grab Him and I'm going to kiss Him. Oh, friends, there was hell in that kiss. As he dug the knife in Jesus, as he would use this, it is marvelous to consider what Jesus endured and what wickedness. But ultimately, what we understand is that Judas bailed. Because for Judas, he was following Jesus to gain something. He was following Jesus for personal gain. And what he found out is he began to hear these sermons about dying to yourself and denying yourself and about taking up your cross. Judas began to like look around and say, Hey, this isn't for me. I, I was about making money here. I thought I thought the kingdom of God was like coming literally, and I thought you were gonna. You're to rally the troops, and the angels were going to come down, and, and we were, you're were going to usher in a new kingdom, and I could, you know, kind of maybe be in charge of the treasury of this new kingdom. What Judas discovered is that following Jesus, in fact, co- is costly. Following Jesus requires you to deny everything you want in life for his glory. And so Judas says, Look, I'm going to try to get out while the getting's good. While the stocks are up, I'm out. I'm getting out. I'm going to try to cash in on this deal. And so we're told that he goes to the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the chief priests, and he goes there in order to betray Jesus. And the other gospel writers tell us it's just for 60 pieces of silver, just a a few bucks, he betrays Jesus, uh, you know, maybe about $3,500, which may seem like a lot, but for a man's life. For the life of Jesus? Not only do we see the wickedness displayed here in Judas, but do we not see it also in the religious leaders? Mark tells us that a crowd came. It wasn't just a few officers came and come down there. No, it was a whole crowd of people. But not just a crowd of people. A crowd of people with swords and clubs. Like they were going out to capture a a warrior. Like they were going out to defeat a a, a valiant valiant king. It was just Jesus. A couple of disciples. And a half-clothed man out there. And they come out there with swords and clubs. They were ready to fight. They they really thought Jesus was going to put up a fight. And they come out there. And we notice here in in Mark... is very subtle in what he's trying to say here, but, but notice that it's at night. We hear it in Jesus' words. He says, hey, look, I was with you day after day. Notice the theme, day after day, and you come to me at night, in the cover of darkness when nobody's looking. You remember, the religious leaders were always concerned about creating some sort of upheaval there in Jerusalem. They, they loved peace. Because when there was peace, they got more cash from Rome. But when there was unsettled, when things were a little, a little crazy, all Rome withheld money. And so we see that that it was day after day, and they came at night. And Luke tells us this: when I was with you, Jesus right says this in Luke twenty-two, parallel to this passage: when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. It's your time to shine, he says. It's your hour. And he comes, and they come, and they take Jesus away. The language here is so hard. The language here is so harsh and, and, and evil and wicked. Look at it. Look, They didn't just come and say, hey, Jesus, we, we want to have a conversation. You know, Come down to the precinct with us. You know, we just want to sit around and drink a cup of coffee and chat. No, Judas says seize him. Seize him. Grab him. Some of your translations may say arrest. Uh, most scholars I read, they said that's just not enough. You know, we have in our minds, you know, like peaceful, like cuffs behind the back, you know, get in the get in the car and go down the, No, no, this is this is violent. This is this is this they, they tackled Jesus, they grab hold of him, they seize him, and they lead him away. But not only do we see the wickedness of these men, we also see the sinfulness of the disciples. Mark tells us in verse 50 that they all left him and fled. These same disciples, who in verse 31 say emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. They were ready to die with Jesus, but here they are running like little girls, scared. They thought they could stand in the midst of trial. They thought they could stand. But what they discovered was that their hearts were weak. And Jesus warned them of this. He says, you're all going to fall away. The, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. You will all fall away. Or as we heard in Psalm eighty-eight eighteen, you have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. They shunned him. They, they didn't want him anymore. They said, no, I, I mean, I'm not riding with this guy anymore. I'm not willing to die with this guy. John records these words of Jesus in the same. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered. Each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone for my Father's with me. The Lord Jesus faced such sorrow. And one thing we understand, not only from this passage, but others, is that the depravity of the human heart is universal. We may point fingers at Judas and we may be like, man, Judas, you're, you're evil. But one thing we need to understand is the brokenness and the, the depth of depravity of Judas's heart and that of these other men, even of the disciples, is our heart as well. From Adam to us, we are all sinners. All of us have been infected with this sin. Not one of us is exempt. No one is born in the world and is taught how to sin. Every one of us is born, fallen, and it's an infectious disease. And that that rebellion runs deep in our hearts. Now someone may ask, well does that mean that we are all just as evil as we can be? No. There are many good people in the world, but we need to qualify what we mean by good. No, we're not as evil as we could be, but all our actions, the Bible says, are tainted by sin. All of our actions are tainted by sin. And what is so glorious in this passage is that God uses this evil to bring about his purposes of redemption. He uses evil to bring about his glorious purposes. Just remember, Remember Joseph? What he said to his brothers? He says, yo, you all wanted to hurt me. You meant this for evil. But God meant it for good. And saved an entire nation because of your wicked acts. Jesus here is not a mere pawn. This isn't some accident. This is glorious. And friends, what we need to see in this passage is to remind ourselves of the wickedness of human sin. The wickedness of our own hearts. That we should be reminded of what we were saved from. This is why Paul often in the New Testament letters will begin by just reminding, in case you forgot, uh, how sinful you once were. <laughs> For you were once hostile in mind. he says in Colossians 1.20. Three, you were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's what you were. Like he's like, I I mean, there's no other way I can clean that up for you. No other way I can clarify that for you. You were wicked and evil. He says, and not just you. In First Timothy, he says, "Man, I'm like, I am the worst of sinners. I am a wicked man." He says, and we are so often tempted to. Clean ourselves up. Justify ourselves. Explain our sin away. Uh, You know, it was the circumstances. You, You just don't understand. No, Jesus understands. He was there in the midst of these hours of temptation. He knows what temptation is like. And temptation is never an excuse to sin. And I just wonder, are you also tempted like Judas, to follow Jesus for selfish gain? Like the disciples, perhaps this morning there's pride in your heart, pride in your own strength. You thought, you think you can stand, you think you got this. I, I'm good.'m I'm, I'm all good. I don't I don't need to invest time reading God's word and praying. I don't need to be around God's people. I don't need to hear God's word. Regularly preached? I don't need that. I'm good. I'm strong. Are you? This is why we see so clearly the exhortation of Jesus again. Watch and pray, he says. It reminds us also that we are to be charitable towards those who stumble. The disciples stumbled. They tripped. They fell. They fled. But they were restored. How gracious are you with those who stumble? Are you quick and ready to help them back up? Or do you trample them? Do you bring words of grace? Or condemnation. Are you like James who exhorts the church to be quick to restore a brother who has sinned? Be quick to bring about repentance that way? Or do you just point fingers and. Are we charitable towards those who stumble? Brothers and sisters, we must see that our hearts are desperately wicked, that they are full of evil, yet the Lord willingly endured such evil for us. And so we want to see this second point, which is so glorious and beautiful. The willingness of Jesus to endure evil by sinners and for sinners. Jesus knew this day was coming. It did not come to Him by surprise, as we've already said. In fact, if you turn back in Mark's Gospel to, to chapter 8 and verse 31, He told His disciples and beginning to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then in verse 31 of chapter 9. For he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. I just want to note something here. Notice, delivered. Who? Who delivered Jesus into the hands of these men? Was, was it Judas? Was it the disciples? Was it the chief priests? Were they the ones that did this? No, we understand this passage as we talked about then. That this is God's sovereign purposes. God is the one who is acting here. God is the one who is delivering Jesus over to these men. And Jesus is going willingly. Friends, this is Jesus. This is the guy who can call down legions of angels to wipe out these guys. In, in, a, in a second, these guys could have vanished. Jesus is standing there and he is allowing this. He had all the resources of heaven. He is who Paul said is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from all creation, who created these men. By whom he created all things in heaven and on earth, whether rulers or authorities, He created them. He created these people and yet he allowed them to take him, bound, seized. Jesus said, "Get your hands off of me." He says, "Take me. take me to the cross." He went willingly. As, as he says in Matthew 26, and just listen here to Matthew 26, a parallel, uh, Matthew kind of adds a little bit more to the story and tells a little bit more of was going on. And just listen, this proves the point that Jesus did this willingly. He says, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into the place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Listen to this. Listen to what he he says to Peter. Do not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? Therefore it must be so. I can call my dad up right now, and he'll be here. But he doesn't. He goes willingly. He is seized and arrested innocently. Did nothing wrong to deserve such, such attacks, such blows. Who does such a thing? We see Jesus willingly submitting to the Father's will, do we not? Remember Jesus prayed back up there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just moments before he prayed, Father, if if, if there's any other way, let's, let's do that now. But then he says, no, no, no. Let's continue. Let your will be done and not mine. Your will, Lord. Father in heaven, I want your will to be done. I don't... And as he says here in verse 49, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus willingly submits to the Father's purposes. You know, you know think about that today. If you want to think more about this passage maybe have a discussion what does it mean how, how, do, how, do, how do I grasp to know this God? allow this to be a means to know God more as you think about the son willingly submitting to the father and what that means and and how that speaks to who God is and the beauty of God. The author of Hebrews writes, looking to Jesus, look to Jesus, he says, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured the cross. He knew what He willingly went. What we see here also is that Jesus was treated as a common criminal. Jesus says to him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? He's like, you got the whole posse down here. What's the deal? Uh, other translations use criminal instead of robber, which is a better understanding of the word uh, criminal. You come out of me as a criminal? You're treating me like I'm a criminal, like I did something wrong. It, we see here clearly that Jesus is innocent. He did not deserve any of this. There was nothing he did, but what's so beautiful though is that word robber there is the same word that's used over there at the cross. In verse 27. Luke writes and they were and with him they crucified two robbers. Jesus was punished as if he had done something deserving it. As if he had merited the kind of shame and death that these other criminals received. Who did, as best we know, deserve to be on the cross. They actually did something wrong. They were, we're told, maybe tried to start an insurrection. They tried to start a revolt. We're not really sure. Exactly what they did, but we know that they did something to deserve the cross of Christ. The cross there next to Christ, but it was Christ who died innocent. Or as we heard in Psalm 88 8, and I hope you're hearing how clear that Psalm points to this passage I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Counted among them. Like a whole herd of people. And he's numbered with them. Or as Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus Christ became sin for sinners. Jesus Christ endured this evil for you. And for me. And I pray that this causes your heart to marvel at the wonder of the gospel. The glory of Christ Jesus. I pray that you find solace and satisfaction in Christ's sufferings for you. I I pray that, that you find rest for your soul. That it is not by the merits of your life. It is not by your good deeds that you've done this week that has put a smile on God's face. But it is the death of Jesus Christ that is a sweet fragrance to the Father in heaven. And if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ and put your, your, your satisfaction in Him and your confidence in Him, if you resting in what He accomplished, friends, you can know that you do not have to face this. Perhaps this morning you come and you have felt similar betrayal. Perhaps you come this morning and you f- you felt the, the hand of evil upon you. You felt the, the sinful blows of another. Maybe through betrayal. Maybe someone hurt you. you can have confidence to know that your Savior suffered. He can sympathize with you. Not as one who maybe can think about what that would be like. No, He knows what it's like. And you can pray to one, you can talk to one who has suffered the way you have suffered. Who has felt the pain that you have suffered. God is glorious in this. I think also as we consider an application of this, how we might also have the same attitude among us. This willingness to follow the Father's will regardless of the cost. The willingness to submit to God's sovereign purposes. Oh, we see clearly in this passage that God is sovereign. (laughs) Jesus is is the one in control. These men came and arrested Jesus, but, but as we've already seen, Jesus was in control. He allowed it to happen. What is there perhaps in your life that you need to smearly allow to say, you know what, God, I'm going to stop fighting you. You have brought me into this path. You have brought me into this wilderness so that I may trust you. So that I may find that you are all I need. I, I don't need all this other stuff. I just need you. And so what perhaps this morning has God brought you into? That you might learn to be like Christ and follow His example in the midst of suffering. Do we trust the Lord when we face difficulty? Do we not think that, that perhaps God has brought us difficulties so that we may trust Him more? Or do you only trust the Lord when, when things are good, when things are easy? Do you not think that we will suffer in this life? The Bible has made it clear that we will. As we consider this passage, as we consider what Christ endured, uh, in conclusion, I want us to think about something. I often exhort us not to sort of read ourselves into the story as Jesus. That is, that we tend to read the Bible as we're the hero of the story. Be like Goliath or something of that. Or be like David and the Goliaths and all that kind of crazy stuff. But I want you to think about something That this man, Jesus, who is in this garden, being seized and arrested and led away to a place of death and torture and torment. Where he will be accused of a crime he did not commit. Where he will be tried for a treason that he did not do. That that is really you. You are the one that should have been there that night. You are the one who should be arrested. You are the one who committed the crime. You are the one who deserves the death. You are the one who deserves the betrayal. You are the one for your own sin. But yet Jesus endures this In your place. Literally in your place. You deserve to have Satan grab you and take you up before the throne of God and accuse you of crimes you actually committed. And to hear the sentence of death put upon you and your life eternally. Jesus Christ willingly did this. He willingly endured evil so that you could be set free from your crimes. So that your crimes against Him would not be counted against you. So that you might have a relationship with Him. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we would consider the wickedness of our own hearts. And how the Lord has rescued us from them. I pray also that we would consider the willingness of Christ to endure evil. That we would glory in this. That He endured it by sinners and for sinners. That Christ Jesus endured this for you. Let's pray. Gracious Father in Heaven, it is glorious, oh so glorious, to consider the depth of your love. Father, as we sang earlier, that there is sufficient grace to cover all our sin. And Father, my prayer today for your people is that they would know that. That there would be a sense of assurance overwhelm them today as they think about this. As they consider all of their sin is washed away. What glory that is. Cause our hearts to grow in your knowledge. Help us to bear fruit in our lives for your glory. And may we marvel in the cross of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's conclude our time this